The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. When I was uh, first getting into reading Dr. Van Til's works, I, I was living in Texas, and um, I was getting excited about some of the things I was reading, and I was also fairly newly married. And as I read along, I, I uh, would uh, think about certain things, and, and if any of you have read any of Dr. Van Til's stuff, you know that it's not um, immediately clear. Uh, so it requires some, some thought and some uh, interpretation and things like that. And I remember going home one evening, uh, and I had been thinking through some things, and uh, Peggy was uh, ironing, and I was telling her how excited I was, and I was trying to explain some of the principles uh, that I had been uh, reading about and some of the things that I'd been reading. And she was ironing along there, and um, after a while she started crying a little bit. And uh, I, I thought, well, I really got her here. I've uh, cut to the heart, and uh, she's, we're convicted together, and off we go. And uh, I said, what are you crying about? And she said, I'm afraid you're getting involved in a cult. <laughs> so, <clears throat> first clue that I may be misunderstanding uh, some things that I was reading. But there are some things in... Uh, Van Til's works that are uh, radical when you first hear about them and when you first uh, read them. Uh, for example, let me just tell you some of the things that, uh, some of the radical things that Van Til says. He says that nothing can be known unless God is first known. He says if we know ourselves, we already know God. He says God's existence cannot be proven. He says, everything proves the existence of God. He says, Christians have nothing in common with non-Christians. He says, Christians and non-Christians have everything in common. He says, the non-Christian knows nothing. He says, the non-Christian knows God. You can see why Peggy was crying while she was ironing. Some of those things just don't come together, do they? If you just sort of blurt those things out, um, you uh, conclude rightly that whoever is uh, believing that sort of thing is uh, loony. They're just uh, some of them blatant contradictions on the surface. But I think as you think through those principles and as you look at the way that Scripture talks sometimes, you know, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that all people, including unbelievers, know God. He says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 that unbelievers don't know God. Now, we're Bible-believing Christians. We know that God doesn't deny Himself. We know that Scripture is the Word of God. So we know that these can't be contradictions. We have to interpret those kinds of statements. And it's the same way when we begin to discuss uh, the apologetics of Dr. Van Til. 
One of the things that's the most difficult about Van Til is he was raised on Scripture. And everything that he says oozes Scripture without one quote from the Bible. From the time he, came, he was a boy, when he, the first time he could remember, he remembers his parents reading Scripture at every meal, before the meal and after the meal, three meals a day on the farm, in Holland. And he did that all his life. So Scripture was such a part of his life that he never saw the need, as he wrote down his apologetic, to begin thorough exegesis. So those of us who come along later, and and those of us who don't ooze Scripture, begin reading these things, and we begin to think, oh my goodness, there's something wrong here. But as you begin to understand better what he's saying in the light of what Scripture says, you begin to see that he is simply following uh, the Apostle Paul. He is simply following what Scripture teaches in the first place. Now, I want to go through, as the outline says, I want to give you four broad strokes of uh, Van Til's system. It's difficult uh, in a situation like this um, to, because it, to, to, to be able to flesh this out because I- any time I uh, limit it this way in terms of four broad strokes, there are another ten that you're not getting that are there. Maybe we can deal with those uh, in the question-answer time. But I want to give you four. It's not complete, but I think these are at least uh, among the top ten uh, principles, radical principles that are necessary uh, in Van Til's apologetical approach. The first one is, uh, as you see there, the composition of the world. Now, it's not quite accurate to say the composition of the world because what I'm really talking about is the structure of things. How do we typically think about everything that is? How, what word do we use? How do we delineate Everything that exists. What do we call it? Someone. Anyone. What do we call it? Pick a word. Everything that is. Okay, the universe. Reality. Yeah, those are really the two biggies, aren't they? The universe and reality. Now, it's normal to talk that way. But then we ask the question, how does God fit into that? You see how it goes. If I'm thinking that, that everything that exists is called the universe, where does God fit into that universe? Is God simply a part of the universe? So is He contained in everything that is? What do you think? You're not going to answer. Is God a part of reality? So that when you say reality, you're saying, here's this big bubble and God and and everything else is in there? That's how we tend to think. And Van Til saw that as a problem. Because the Bible doesn't encourage us to think in that way. And that's why one of the most famous little, probably the only little drawing you'll see in reference to Van Til are the two circles, right? Larger circle here, connected, and then a smaller circle here. And Van Til's point in drawing these two circles 
is that everything that is, is dualistic. Now, this is not dualism. If it were dualism, it would be idolatrous. Dualism, ultimate good, ultimate evil, they clash, all that sort of thing that you have in, in uh, philosophy sometimes. But, but biblically, reality, or everything that is, is dualistic. There is God, and there is everything else. Simply what he called the creator creature distinction. It's a fundamental point in Van Til's apologetic that can never be dismissed or forgotten. The creator creature distinction. There is God who is of a completely different nature and kind from everything else that exists. Because everything except God is created. These lines, just to put it simply, are meant to indicate God's covenant. That is, when God created, He made a covenant. There is a creational covenant, there is a redemptive covenant. But when God created, He condescended in order to be in a relationship with people. Right? Westminster Confession talks about it in chapter 7. We would know nothing of God at all unless God first condescended and revealed Himself to us. We wouldn't know God because of who God is. God has to reveal Himself and tell us who He is. And he does that through creation and through special revelation. Now the Bible. So reality or the universe or whatever you want to call everything else that is, has to include the Creator God. And we don't want to think, because this is the way we've thought historically, we don't want to think that there is a universe, and here's God, And here's everything else. Because that makes God, God's nature, the same as the nature of the universe. It's a, rather than a dualism, it's a monism, a one-ism. And this is the problem that philosophy's had since the beginning. The beginning of philosophy. Historically, people say it was Thales who started philosophy. And Thales said, everything is water. Then another one came along and said, no, everything's air. Then another one came and said, no, everything's unlimited, unbounded. You see what they're trying to do? They're trying to lump everything together. That's their initial problem. You can't do that. There's God the Creator who reveals Himself, and then there's everything created. It's a basic fundamental principle that the Bible teaches and that we have to understand in defending the faith. The Bible starts with that principle. In the beginning, God created. There it is, the two circles. That means that we understand, first of all, that God is sovereign, that He is self-existent, that He doesn't depend on anything at any time or anyone. God did not create in order to have fellowship as if he were lonely all by himself. 
until people came around to keep him company? Because God had fellowship before creation, right? Fellowship how? In the Trinity. So God didn't need to create. God freely chose to create. And He is independent of everything and anything. And when we defend the faith, we, we, we dare not say, same in evangelism, we, we should not say or think that God depends upon us and our presentation and what we're saying in order for this to work. God doesn't sit back in a rocking chair. God is independent. God is sovereign. God is self-existent. God controls the universe. And everything else is by virtue of His free creative act. And it's the triune God that created. John 1, uh, harking back to Genesis 1. And as Christians, we say, God created Ex nihilo. What does that mean? From nothing. Now, people who are unbelievers say that that is impossible, right? Ex nihilo. Pain. Here's a Latin student. And what does it mean? Out of nothing, nothing comes. And you know what? That is absolutely right. And we should not say as Christians, no, that's not right. Because technically, creation is not ex nihilo, it's ex deo. It's not that there was nothing there, it's that God was there. And God spoke, and it was. So we don't hold, technically, that creation came from nothing. We hold that creation came from God. The creator-creature distinction. That's the first broad stroke. The second broad stroke in Van Til's thought is the conflict in the world. I puzzled a a while over whether or not to give you new words because sometimes they're scary, and I decided I would. Could be a mistake. But here we're talking about the antithesis. Jesus says in Matthew 10, Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Luke 11, He who is not with me is against me. The basic principle here is that there is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And that there is no neutrality between those two kingdoms. There's no such thing as a no man's land. Intellectually or in any other way. There are only two kingdoms. Not three, not four, not two and a half, not two plus a neutral area. Two kingdoms. The kingdom of Christ what Christ called the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of this world. Now Van Til talked about this antithesis. He he called it an absolute ethical antithesis. 
What did he mean by that? By absolute, he meant really the opposite of relative. He meant that the antithesis is not dependent on circumstances or situations. It is not a conditional antithesis, so that it applies at some points and not at others. That's what he means by absolute. It is an antithesis that's there because of the fact of sin in the world. So that there are only two kingdoms and nothing in between. And that those kingdoms are always separate, and that separation always obtains, is always the case. By ethical, he really means not moral, which is the way we use it sometimes, but he means the opposite of structural. It's not a... It's not an antithesis where you have people over here and aliens over here. It's not that kind of thing that changes the structure of creation. But it's an ethical, or maybe even better, a religious antithesis. Because of the fact that God created... And because of the fact that God created people, all people are covenant creatures. That is, they are in some kind of relationship to the God they create, that, that created them. And they're either in, well, let's say it His way, they're either keeping the covenant or breaking the covenant. They're not sort of neutral with regard to the covenant, with regard to that relationship. People are in a relationship to God. God is their ultimate environment. He is everywhere present. He is always revealing Himself to people through creation. And people either submit to that by faith in Christ and trust in Him and keep covenant with God through Christ... Or they break it. But it's not the case that unbelievers and unbelief is neutral out there somewhere with no real relationship to God at all. Sort of in a no man's land. That's not it. All people are religious because all people are covenantally qualified because they're created. So they're all in a relationship to the God who created them. And it's that relationship, you see, that determines, humanly speaking, their eternal destiny. Hell or heaven. So by ethical, he's saying there are really only, not only two kingdoms, but only two religions. Christianity and everything else. And because we are inherently religious people because of our creation, we're always involved in some kind of religious activity. So we're using religion here not in the form that we sometimes use it of uh, Christian religion and Buddhist religion and those sorts of formalized religions, but we're using religion here in terms of ourselves before the face of God 
always and everywhere. So that our activity in the world is a religious activity. And that's true for everyone. I'm not speaking here only of Christians. Now, what does he mean? That's what he means by absolute. That's what he means by ethical. What does he mean by antithesis? He means simply that there is opposition and conflict. Now, it doesn't have to take the form of violence and war. As a matter of fact, in the Christian context, it will not take that form. But it is nevertheless conflict. And it is opposition. It is a clash of kingdoms. It is a clash of worldviews. There is the kingdom that says, by faith, in Christ, by grace, it says, God created, I'm one of His creatures, I'm one of His children, my responsibility, my goal, is to glorify Him. And there's the other situation, the other worldview that says, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to believe in myself. I'm going to trust me and move on. I'm going to grab for all I can get. I'm going to look out for number one. Pick your own bumper sticker. Two kingdoms clashing. So that what we have in this world are not just disparate sort of confusing things going on. Really, biblically, we have the kingdom of Christ and the kingdom of this world. One or the other. So that you know, if you ever talk to an unbeliever, there's a sense in which you know more about that unbeliever than that unbeliever knows about himself. Because you know about that kingdom. And you know who's the king in that kingdom. Or the queen in that kingdom. You know who's in charge. Because it is that unbeliever. By virtue of what they think. All right? That's the second stroke. Third, contact with the world. Now, here's where we get a little muddy sometimes. The Anknupfungspunkt. I'm not going to write that on the board. There's not enough room. Stories told about Van Til when he uh, came into class one day, he forgot that he had assigned a, a, an exam for the day. And as he walked in and and, uh, looked like he was going to begin to lecture, one of the students reminded him that this is an exam day. And he didn't remember that. So he turned around and he wrote that word on the board and he left. He wrote, on Knupfungspunkt, and out he walked. And students uh, had to write on that for an hour. True story, I think. What does it mean? It simply means point of contact. What is it? Given that there is this antithesis, what now is the point of contact between Christianity and unbelief? What is the point of contact between the two kingdoms? Now, historically, there have been different answers to that question. The The two most prominent answers, I'll give you the first one, has been reason. You heard something about that last week, I think. That the point of contact between the two kingdoms is our reasoning process, our minds, our thinking process. 
This was made uh, most popular by Thomas Aquinas and those who followed him. Because Aquinas asserted that there are truths that we can know about God by natural reason, without the aid of revelation. I'm almost quoting him verbatim. We can know certain truths about God by natural reason alone, without the use of revelation. Such are, he says, that God exists and that He is one and the like. So Aquinas set out to show that by natural reason, the Christian with the non-Christian, we can prove or show or demonstrate the existence of God. We don't need revelation to do it. We are capable without revelation. And his, one of his proofs for that was Aristotle. He said, look, it's got to be the case. Aristotle's already done it. And Aristotle couldn't have been a Christian because he lived before Christ. So there are truths that, that are known by reason alone. So Aquinas formulated his five ways... Five ways to prove the existence of God. And one of the most popular ways has come to be called the cosmological argument. Put simply, the cosmological argument says everything that comes to be has a cause. The universe came to be. Therefore... Someone want to conclude? Yeah, God caused the universe, right. Everything that comes to be as a cause, the universe came to be, therefore God caused the universe. Cosmological argument. Aquinas wanted to show that that could be proven, that the existence of God could be proven by natural reason alone. Notice in the cosmological arguments that the premises are rational premises, Right? Everything that comes to be has a cause. That's not an empirical premise, is it? You can't know that by observation. Right? Why can't you know it by observation? Yeah. Can't see the beginning? You can't see everything that comes to be. Nobody's seen it. Nobody's experienced it. Can't happen. So it's a rational, rational, reasonable premise. You extrapolate it from the things you've seen, but the premise itself is rational. So is the second one. The universe came to be. You can't know that empirically. You've only been here, what, 18 years, some of you. There's no way you can discover that in 18 years, that the universe came to be. It's a rational premise. So reason, at this point, is the common ground, according to Aquinas, between the believer and the unbeliever. The second answer... Well, why is that your experience? Your experience is that the universe has always been here while you've been here, and it was here while your parents were here and your grandparents and... Right. So, 
you might. Yes, right. That's part of the problem. Yeah, if, if you're going to take that, in other words, it's sort of an arbitrary rational premise. If you're going to take that premise, you can also take the other one. And Aquinas uh, held this, actually, that the universe is eternal. Now, he held it was eternal but created, but that's another problem. The second answer has been uh, evidence. Remember, we're looking for point of contact, the onknutfunkspunkt. First one, some have said, is reason. The second one, some have said, is evidence. The paradigm case for this, classic case, is Bishop Joseph Butler, 18th century Anglican apologist. Now, Butler wanted to reason from the things we observe to that which is most probably true by analogy. Analogy. He believes, Butler, with Aquinas, that there are truths that can be known by natural reason. So he assumes the rational premise. He goes into the argument with that. But he argues on the basis of evidence, the things that we see. His primary purpose is to show that the claims of Christianity have a degree of probability to make it frivolous, he says, and imprudent not to live as though they are true. His major argument is that this life, as we observe it, and the afterlife, taken together, exhibit features which resemble known features in this life alone. Example, we know that there is life after this life because we observe stages of development in the growth of human beings. We see infants change to toddlers. Yes, it does happen. We see toddlers go into the next stage. What is the next stage after toddler? Child. We see child move into... Don't even want to say that word. And from there to a semblance of adulthood. So he says there's, there's every reason to think since we see that growth, we know that after adulthood, most probably there's got to be something else. That's how we prove the afterlife by analogy. We know there is a resurrection because we see things die in the winter and come back to life in the spring. Therefore, most probably, when people die... They come back to life. In other words, it is evidences that we observe that warrant a high probability that Christianity is true. Now, what has uh, Butler proven? Let's say he's right in his argument. What has he proven? What's the best that Butler can prove with that kind of argument? If he's 100% successful, what's he proven? Something. What? What kind of Christianity has he proven? It's a probable Christianity. The best you can do with Butler's argument is say, God probably exists. There's probably an afterlife. 
there's probably a resurrection, high probability, 98% chance that there, that there is a God. Well, it it's definitely uses the same principles of Aquinas, but the argument itself depends on the available evidence because he argues from what's observed by analogy to what's not observed. Yeah, he has. He wouldn't quite see it that way. He would think that it depends on, on the evidence itself. Uh, and so, so he would he would expect that someone would question his understanding of the evidence, which he thought was pretty sound. We all observe certain things; it's a universal. See, he saw that as the point of contact because we're all looking at the same stuff and concluding the same things. Uh, but your point is right; you can't do that unless you assume the same thing Aquinas is assuming with regard to reason. He's just not appealing to principles of reason, but he's appealing to principles of evidence. That's why when Aquinas did his cosmological argument, the principle had to be a rational principle, see. But with, with Butler, it's an evidential principle. All right. Now, Van Til disagreed with both of these on Knutfunkspunkten. <laughs> with both of these points of contact because of the theological problems and the methodological problems that both of them have. Given the absolute ethical antithesis, what do believer and unbeliever have in common? Van Til's answer is nothing and everything. So much fun to do that. What does he mean? He means that the Christian and the non-Christian, in terms of what they know, have nothing in common. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking that's ridiculous. If you think of knowledge not simply as a datum, a little piece of stuff you have there in your mind, if you think of knowledge rather as contained within a structure of understanding... That's what Van Til's talking about when he says the Christian and non-Christian have nothing in common in terms of what they know. The believer sees the cat walk across the street. The unbeliever sees the cat walk across the street. The believer says the cat walked across the street. The unbeliever says the cat walked across the street. That's the datum. How does the unbeliever think about the cat? Is the cat a created cat? Is the cat a cat that lives in God's world and conforms in its life to what God has given it to do? What the naturalists call instinct? See, the unbeliever sees those things and sifts those things through an unbelieving grid so that the interpretation of that bit of knowledge always has with it the unbelief. That's part of the problem of unbelief. So that when the Christian sees these things, when the Christian views the world, in principle now, we all slip. 
sin is the biblical word. (laughs) But when we view the world, we see God's world and God working in the world and the plan of God. We see a part of that in the world. And we see ourselves, by grace, as a part of that plan. The unbeliever sees none of it. So that everything that comes to the unbeliever is a disjointed piece of something that the unbeliever has to sift in that rejection of the knowledge of God and to try to understand without God. That's why he says everything that the unbeliever knows is different from what the believer knows, from what the Christian knows. Now that's a very uh, short explanation of a very long discussion But it has to do with the radical nature of our regeneration. When we're regenerated as Christians, when the Holy Spirit changes us and we trust in Christ, part of that regeneration, according to Scripture, is in our minds, has to do with our minds. We're to be renewing our minds, but we have the mind of Christ. The unbeliever cannot submit to the law of God. The unbeliever doesn't have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. We're renewed unto knowledge. It's a part of what regeneration is. And that means that we begin, as Christians, to sift the things that we understand for the first time through the true grid of Christianity. But, Van Til says, they also have everything in common. They have nothing in common in terms of what they know. They have everything in common in terms of who they are. And this is back to the first point we talked about. They have everything in common because they are created people living in God's created world, breathing the air that God gives them, eating the food that He gives them, and on and on and on. So you see, the unbeliever is the one who's a walking contradiction, right? Walking around in God's world as God's creature, eating God's food, saying there is no God. There's going to be tension in a person's life who lives that way, isn't there? It's bound to happen. No one can do that. It's abnormal. Can't operate that way. So they have everything in common by virtue of the fact that they're created and God's creatures and in covenant with Him. Breaking covenant, but they're still a covenant. They cannot leave the face of God. Now, Van Til's big words for that is that epistemologically, that is in terms of knowledge, there's nothing in common. Metaphysically, in terms of creation, everything is in common. Okay? Finally, conversation with the world. Two final points here. Given everything that we've said so far, Van Til's approach, the approach that I think conforms to Scripture, And here's another big word, it's on your sheet there, is a transcendental approach. Now, you don't need to remember that word necessarily. 
There's bound to be a better one. I can't think of one. can't think of what it would be. But transcendental simply means this. Given any fact or any experience, the Christian asks, what are the presuppositions behind that fact and which make that fact possible? That's a transcendental approach. That's a presuppositional approach to defending the faith. Given any fact, given any experience, what are the presuppositions that are there? And which make that fact possible. So that when the Christian talks to the non-Christian, we don't simply deal on the, on the plane, on a flat level plane of facts and facts and more facts. Well, here's a fact, there's a fact, oh yeah, your fact, yeah, my fact. But we start talking about the assumptions or the presuppositions behind those facts. And this is where it is the responsibility of the Christian to uh, think through what the non-Christian is really saying. Is really saying. And oftentimes the non-Christian won't know what they're really saying. Because they're confused. They're walking contradictions. They're trying to make their lives work. The God-created world is God-created people saying there is no God. That's confusing. Those of you who have done it. I've done it. So you get at the presuppositions behind what the non-Christian is saying. Let me give you a simple, sort of trite, uh, but sometimes effective example. What is the um, Achilles heel of Christianity according to most, uh, most of those who attack the Christian position? What's been called the Achilles heel of the Christian position? Anybody know? Yes? Problem yes, problem of evil. The unbeliever says, you cannot have an omniscient, no, you cannot have an all-powerful, good, all-knowing God and still have evil in the world. Those two don't go together. You can't have it. If he's all-powerful, he would stop the evil. Unless he's not good. But you say he's good. And he's omniscient, so he knew that there would be evil. You can't have those two. They, they, they clash. Now, there are a lot of presuppositions working in that kind of attack on the Christian faith. One of them, though, is, and this is, this is too simple, but at least it's a start. One of them is, you say to the non-believer, you don't have a problem with evil. Because you don't have evil. How can you say that there's a problem with evil when you can't define evil? Because to define evil, you've got to have an absolute good. And you've already said there's no such. Because there is no God. So the very definition of evil depends on the existence of God. See, that's one of those presuppositions back there that's working in the uh, unbeliver's rejection of Christianity. Don't like Christianity because of all these bad things. Well, tell me why you think it's bad. What's your standard? If it's a relative standard, then you're simply giving me autobiographical information. Well, we don't have to answer the problem of evil. 
I don't think the Bible gives us a comprehensive answer to the problem of evil. If it does, I haven't found it. But we don't have to answer the problem of evil. As a matter of fact, if we could answer all the problems, we'd be agreeing with the unbeliever that we are God. Right? So we have to say to them, we don't mind the mystery. Because the mystery is finite. The mystery is a result of who we are. Because in God there is no mystery. But you see, you live in a world where everything is mysterious. Ultimately mysterious. And therefore irrational. You can't make sense of the fact that you go to work every morning. Or go to school every morning. Right? So when you start getting at the presuppositions behind what the non-Christian is saying, when you start looking at that, then you begin to see what's working in the life of that person. Van Til's great illustration is something that he caught when he was riding on a train one time, and he saw a little girl sitting on her daddy's knee, and she slapped him in the face. And he said, there is unbelief. You see, it's the little girl sitting on her daddy's knee, slapping him. Now, she slaps him, but what makes the slap possible? What makes it possible is that she sits on the daddy's knee. She couldn't slap him unless she was there. That's the situation of the unbeliever. What makes their denial of God possible is the fact that God exists. Right? So there you have the situation of unbelief. The tension that is in the life of an unbeliever. They spend every waking and most of their sleeping time denying the facts that they know are true. It's a terrible situation to be in. Transcendental. What are the presuppositions? Second thing that I think it's, it's important to understand, this is the last thing I'll say. In Van Til's approach, it's an ad hominem approach. And this makes it hard. It means, it means that your, your defense of Christianity is not a cookie-cutter defense. It's not something you cut out and just burp out to people. It's not, hey, everything that comes to be has a cause. The universe came to be, therefore God. And you better believe it, reasonable person. See, that's the way sometimes we do uh, evangelism. That's the way sometimes we do um, our defense of the faith. What makes this hard is in an ad hominem sort of situation, you have to work with the person, get to know them a little bit, try to understand points of tension, right, as Peter says, with gentleness and reverence, and then that's where you want to, that's where you want to strike. That's where you want to focus your discussion. So people say, well... In this approach, this presuppositional approach, how do you do it? Well, there are lots of ways that you can do it depending on the person, just like there are lots of ways to do evangelism depending on the person, right? You don't just go to them with cookie-cutter stuff and say, hey, here's the scenario, take it. But you may need to be dealing with them in terms of a tragedy in their lives, in terms of questions they're having. And that's how you work with people because you know in God's world they're miserable creatures, denying them all the while. It's the same in, in, uh, in, de- in defense of Christianity or committing the faith. You try to understand where people are, where is that point of tension, and then you go at it. Because that point of tension may be a principle of Christianity that they're using. 
Van Til calls that borrowed capital. It's not their principal. They stole our principal, and now they're using it to make sense of their lives. That's not fair. So you can tell them that. Or it may be a non-Christian principal. But whatever it is, you have the equipment in Scripture to get at it and to help them work through it and to begin to tell them how that principle makes sense, either as something that needs to be rejected or as something that they've accepted uh, with no warrant. So the ad hominem method is relational. It requires you get to know someone. Now, sometimes, you know, you're on an airplane. You don't always have time to do that, but at least you discuss. You don't just give them a tract. Matter of fact, I've found that if you don't want to talk to someone on an airplane, you get on the airplane, you sit down, and you open your Bible. They'll never talk to you if you open your Bible. <laughs> but you don't just hand them a tract. I'm sorry you're having problems. Here, read this. But you, you, you try as best you can to, uh, to see where the points of tension are. So it's relational, but it's also relative to an individual. It's not going to be the same with every person in terms of the way that you do it. But the principles are the same. The principles you apply are the same. The people are different. 